2 Samuel chapter 18. David counted the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. David sent the people out, a third under the hand of Joab, a third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. The king said to the people, I will also surely go out with you myself. But the people said, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die will they care for us. But you are worth ten thousand. Therefore now it is better that you are ready to help us out of the city. The king said to them, I will do what seems best to you. The king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. All the people heard when the king commanded, and all the captains concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were stuck there before David's servants, and there was a great slaughter there that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there spread over the surface of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Absalom happened to meet David's servants. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the sky and the earth, and the mule that was under him went on. A certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, Behold, you saw it? Why didn't you strike him right there to the ground? I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a sash. The man said to Joab, Though I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I still would not stretch out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you, and Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Beware that no one touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt falsely against his life, and there is no matter hidden from the king, then you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this. He took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the middle of the oak. Ten young men who bore Joab's armour surrounded and struck Absalom and killed him. Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held the people back. They took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the forest, and they raised over him a very great heap of stones. Then all Israel fled, each to his own tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and reared up for himself the pillar, which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in memory. He called the pillar after his own name. It is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me now run and carry the king's news, that the king news that Yahweh has avenged him of his enemies. Joab said to him, You must not be the bearer of the news today, but you must carry news another day. But today you must carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz the son of Zadok said yet again to Joab, But come what may, please let me also run after the Cushite. Joab said, Why do you want to run, my son, since you will have no reward for the news? But come what may, he said, I will run. He said to him, Run. 
Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof, to the gate, to the wall, and lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running alone. The watchman cried and told the king. The king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. He came closer and closer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, a man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. The king said, He is a good man. He comes with good news. Ahimaaz called and said to the king, All is well. He bowed himself before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed is Yahweh your God, who has delivered up the men who lifted up their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, even me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Come and stand here. He came and stood still. Behold, the Cushite came. The Cushite said, News for my lord the king, for Yahweh has avenged you today of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you to do to you harm be as that young man. The king was much moved and went up to the room over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, I wish I had died for you. Absalom, my son, my son. Well, it's a bit of a sad ending. <laughs> a good ending, but a sad ending to the rebellion of Absalom. And uh, I tell you what, anyone who rebels with that Absalom spirit, that's what happens to them. You know, Satan, Lucifer, the, anti, you know, the one with the spirit of Antichrist in him, there's a picture of his end right there. He's already been defeated at Calvary, but his, his end is so sad. And, and you can't, the Lord doesn't rejoice over the end. Um, the Lord grieves over the end too. Now, um, so the battle takes place in the, in the forest of Ephraim. Now, if you know your biblical geography, you'll know that Ephraim was on the west side of the Jordan River, but these guys are on the east side of the Jordan River. So <laughs> it's, it's just called the Forest of Ephraim. It's not actually, you know, in Ephraim, weirdly enough. So I guess it's just named after the descendant of Israel, Ephraim. And um, David's in Mahanaim, one of my favorite places in the city. They decide he's not to go into the battle because the enemy just wants to kill you. So you stay there and be safe. We'll go out and fight for you. They go out to the Forest of Ephraim. I googled and found lots of photos and this one here is just to give you a bit of a sense of the forest of Ephraim. And you can see that if you're in a place like that with you know lots of trees and hilly, uneven ground, it's gonna be very difficult to fight systematically. Like if you're the Israelite army, Absalom's army, and you've got you know 100,000 soldiers or however many there were, it's gonna be hard to kind of fight properly in that. It's, it's more like a guerrilla warfare situation. David's got a lot less men, but they're much more experienced. And in that forest situation, they're able to kill 20,000 of the enemy and they set a bit of panic sets in realizing <laughs> we're not winning. And then Absalom is running, running, but on a, he's getting out of there on a mule and he goes under a branch of an oak tree 
and his fabulous hair. Remember we talked about that a few chapters ago? His fabulous hair, which was so long and strong and thick, gets caught in the tree, and he's, it says in the, the translation that he was caught between sky and earth. <laughs> or you could say in modern English, he was hanging in midair. Both phrases sound funny. But anyway, I've Googled, just for your benefit, a giant oak tree, something like that. And you can imagine riding under one of those low branches, and as you're riding, you duck your head, but you don't quite duck it enough, and your hair just gets stuck like Velcro, or even wraps around a bit of a twig or something, and, and the horse is, the mule has gone on, and you're dangling there, and your feet can't quite touch the ground, and you'd be there trying to unravel your hair, um, but it, it, it'd be a tricky little moment. So Absalom, the rebel, the one with the spirit of Antichrist in him, he's left hanging in a tree. Now this is what Deuteronomy 21, 23 says. It says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. <laughs> now that was a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ who was cursed for our sins and hung on a tree. But here, it, it just speaks right to Absalom. He hung on a tree and so he was cursed. And David, of course, you know, it, the prophecy against him was that four of his sons were gonna die. This is number three. Now, um, Joab ends up finding out about him and, and he kills him right there. Now, this is not murder. Um, this is a battle. So in a battle, this is a killing. It's completely fine. It's not a criminal activity and it puts an end to the battle. Now, David had said, don't harm the young man. That was David's personal wishes. But Joab in this case ignores David's advice. And I think Joab has ignored David's advice a number of times throughout the books of Samuel. We've read other stories. Now, in other times, Joab has ignored David's advice and it was not good. But I think it seems to me that everyone agrees that Joab does what, what needs to be done here. Um, that Absalom needed to die. Um, and in the context of war, the, re the rebellion had to be put down. And the choice was, you, you kill Absalom and you save the lives of hundreds of thousands of men, like that enemy army. The minute Absalom's dead, it's all over. All those people go back home. But if you don't kill Absalom, the battle goes on and on and on, and a lot of people die, and it's long drawn out, contracted, terrible war. And Joab knows you know, it must have been a difficult decision for him, but he says, oh, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm putting an end to this thing, and he does it. So it doesn't make for good relationships between David and Joab, but it does end the situation. And I feel like even though Joab at other times did what was wrong and the Lord didn't approve, I think the Lord just allowed all this, and it just put an end to the rebellion. And so here's a man who dishonored his father. Here's a man who, um, who kills his brother, the Old Testament law said that if anyone kills a person, he needed to be put to death. The Old Testament law said that if anyone dishonored their parents, they were to be brought to the elders, and if the elders agreed, they should be stoned to death. Here we've got a man that did both. Dishonored his father like you, you cannot imagine, and he killed his brother. He had no remorse for his sins. He raised up the spirit of Antichrist within him, and the Lord put him to death. The previous chapter said that the Lord had intended you know, to um, bring Absalom's ruin. So here's the end of Absalom. And then all Israel goes home. There's still a few things to say about all of this. 
Um, Absalom, there was a bit of a kind of a pause there in that chapter where it mentioned that Absalom built himself a pillar. It said he had no sons to carry on his name. If you remember back about five chapters ago, it said that Absalom had three sons and a daughter. So um, some of the Bible commentators, they say, oh, you know, there always seems to be Bible commentators that want to undermine the word of God. They say, oh, here's an example of the Bible contradicting itself which is completely ridiculous because it's written by the same person. So it's a matter of understanding why they said that one thing there, that Absalom had three sons and a daughter, and here, why they said he had no sons, so he built a pillar to himself. And the simple answer to that is that he did have three sons. They all died in infancy. None of them became adults. So he ended up being a man with no sons. So he built himself a monument called the Pillar of Absalom. Now, is the Pillar of Absalom still there? Because when we're reading it said that this pillar is still there to this day. <laughs> it's not there to this day, the day that we're alive now, but at the time of the person that wrote 2 Samuel, to that day it was still there. And if you go to Israel today, there's a thing called the pillar of Absalom, but it's not this pillar of Absalom. So it's, it's a thing that's been built since. It was built around about the time of Christ or just before the time of Christ called the pillar of Absalom. Now... Very, very interestingly, and we're slightly diverting here, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there was a scroll called the Copper Scroll. And of all the scrolls, it's definitely the most interesting. And this, um, like scrolls were normally made of parchment, you know, like animal skin, but this scroll was made of copper. That's why it's called the Copper Scroll. So it was flattened out copper and then rolled up, and all the, the, the writing on the scroll was put in by chisel. And uh, it looks like it's been... Uh, written by at least five different uh, scribes because this chiseling style seemed to change as it goes through. I've done a lot of reading on the Copper Scroll. And uh, the Copper Scroll is interesting because it's a, it's a combination of Hebrew and Greek. Whoever chiseled it knew both Hebrew and Greek. And it's got Greek numbers but Hebrew letters. And um, this Copper Scroll is a treasure map. And uh, it's interesting if you want to Google it, don't get caught up in a lot of the hype. There's a lot of hype videos about the Copper Scroll and a lot of them can take you down a rabbit hole of meaninglessness. And some of them will take you down like um, thinking the wrong way about Israel, thinking the wrong way about the Old Testament. The Old Testament's only a picture of Christ and you can get caught up in all the Old Testament symbols and it can take you right off track and you can completely miss Christ. And a lot of people do that, they go right off track. So don't get caught up in all that. Um, but the Copper Scroll essentially was a treasure map. And a lot of people think that it was the temple treasures that were hidden um, before the Babylonians came to you know, destroy the temple. So they're thinking like the time of Jeremiah. Um, I'm not really sure because of the Greek letters in the scroll, the Greek numbers in the scroll. That seems kind of like a bit too early for Greek influence. But there are lots of theories. Anyway... As the treasure map basically is a series of locations. And it, it, so for example, the first location would say, you know, at the, at the silo of so-and-so, go down four steps and dig underneath and there find 70 talents of gold. And as you go through the locations, there's about 58 of them or 60 of them. One of them says, on the south side of Absalom's pillar, dig two cubits and there find, you know, X, X number of talents of gold. So there you go. So the Absalom's pillar, which one was it? Was it the Absalom's pillar being talked about here, which we don't know where it is? 
or was it the Absalom's pillar that was built just before the time of Christ? And they certainly knew their Greek numbers at the time of Christ. Don't know. <laughs> if it's that's Absalom's pillar, it's still there. And uh, could you go and dig on the south side and find some treasure? <laughs> I bet you someone's already tried with a treasure map like this out. Someone is almost certain to have tried. Anyway, it's an interesting diversion indeed. At the end of this chapter, the runners come into Jerusalem and in ancient warfare and in ancient times, that's how messages got around quickly, was with runners. Recently in the um, Olympic Games, we had a, a marathon. There's always a marathon that finish every Olympic Games. And the guy that ran in and got the gold medal was called, I think, Ailud Kipoki or Kipoji. I don't know how to pronounce it. A Kenyan runner. He's won several in a row, three marathons in a row. And he's an incredible marathon runner. And uh, a marathon is around about 42 kilometers. Some of the distances covered here in these battle scenes are similar distances, these ancient runners, where a battle would be over and a runner would start, and they would run 20, 30, 40 kilometers, and they would do it in a very short amount of time. In fact, that's where the word marathon comes from. It comes from a battle in Greece, which took place at Marathon. And then after the battle, they had to run and deliver news. And the distance, I think, was you know 42 kilometers. And so here we've got runners after a battle. And I've often wondered to myself, you know, we've got these modern athletes like the guy that just won their gold medal. And I often wondered how ancient runners like the guy in this chapter would have compared with those, you know, ancient runners versus modern runners. I've often wondered how they would compare. We'll never know. But finally, at the end of the chapter, the king finds out that his son is dead. And he says, my son, Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, I wish I had died for you, Absalom, my son, my son. This is a very, very sad final verse to this chapter. And I just want to say that it, David, you know, David loved his enemy in this case. And he's a picture of Christ. Christ loves his enemies. His enemies have been you and I. And David, Christ did die for his enemies. Christ went to the cross um, and he, he went and he bore our sins upon the cross in our place. Christ's love for us is the same love, so deep, so overflowing, and he did die for us. And so we have a little picture here of just the unmerited love and mercy of Christ. And uh, now David had to put it beside him, as we'll find out in the next chapter, because he had a whole nation to care for. So he had to put aside his personal feelings. But the Lord has these personal feelings for each and every one of us, and even Jerusalem, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wished I could have gathered you, but you were not willing. And this is always the heart of God. The heart of God is so big towards those who hate him. And you know what? We need to be like that too. And so often we're just not like that at all towards people that are opposed to us. We just have a hard heart. Well, Lord, forgive us. Heavenly Father, we see... Um, just so many interesting things in a chapter like this, but we end with considering the love of Christ towards all those who hate you. Lord, you love them. We acknowledge, Lord, we're not really like that. But I ask, Lord, you to fill our heart with love for those who hate us, love for our enemies. Help us to be like the Lord. Father, transform our hearts and our minds. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our hard hearts. Lord, may we be like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.